from the beginning, from the time we are born, we already know we have a purpose. We have a built-in purpose to our lives. Our life is about shifting consciousness. Hello there, I'm Tanya, and you are listening to Human and Holy, a podcast where we discuss the deepest parts of Torah, not just as scholars, but also as human beings. Human and Holy is currently on a season break. The new season of the podcast launches on Sunday, November 26th, just in time for us to celebrate Yotis Kislev together. Today's episode is a re-airing of one of our most popular episodes from the very first season of the podcast. So it's a vintage episode, if you will. I'm sure you'll notice some differences in sound quality, interviews conducted by baby Tanya. We've come so far together over these last couple years, but the content of these conversations are absolutely solid and have resonated with thousands of people. I know you'll enjoy it. In this episode, I interviewed Nahama Kaplan about the promise the soul made before coming down into the body and how that oath inspires her daily life. Nahama speaks about shifting her consciousness away from the self and towards the divine through intentional habit forming and conscious choices. How can you integrate divine consciousness into the details and rhythm of your daily life. Hi, Nechama. Hi, how are you, Tanya? Good, Baruch Hashem. Thank you so much for being here. This is so exciting. Yeah, it's really exciting. And I, I love to talk about Tanya to someone named Tanya. That's like the <laughs> highlight of my day. <laughs> I definitely get that a lot. <laughs> That's great. I'm happy to be here, spanning time zones. Why don't you start just by introducing yourself? My name is Nahama Kaplan. I live in Spot, Israel. Made Aliyah here about nine years ago with my family. You know, when I think about where I was 20, 30 years ago, and I imagine myself that I live in Spot and I teach Hasidus and I have this big family, I would have like done a double take and say like, that's not even possible. How did this happen to you? I had a very traditional background, Jewish conservative. I went to good colleges. I went to Harvard graduate school. I, I was in the very early stages of the internet advertising, like way back before we used to have to convince people to spend their advertising budgets on the internet. So that dates me. But anyway, <laughs> So I went from this very kind of like hip, cool life. I was a academic All-American athlete in college. I started my own Montessori school. I've done like very eclectic things in my life. And then I don't even know how, but somehow my family ended up here in Spot. I'd never learned Hasidus really in a formalized manner. I was 40 years old when we made Aliyah. So 40 is for Bina. So that was like a, a nice... <laughs> 
a nice way to kind of enter into learning Hasidic in the air of the Holy Land. Wow. So prior to moving to Israel, you were you exposed at all or not even exposed? When I became religious, I was 30 years old. We started out Litfish. And after several years of living in a Litfish community and being Litfish and studying from that perspective and that viewpoint, I was introduced to Hasidus and uh, there was really no looking back for me. So, and anyway, I was like already, I had four kids and I, I was very busy and I was running this Montessori school and I didn't really have so much time to study, so to speak. I mean, I, I'm a very intellectually curious person. So I would learn whatever I could, you know, Sifas in English and whatever there was. And I knew that it was calling to me, but I never, I never had opened up a Tanya, to be honest with you, until I moved to Israel. That's so remarkable to me. I've sat in Nechama's Tanya class and you're the most remarkable Tanya teacher. And like, you have such a way of looking at the Tanya. So it's like so encouraging that you only opened it up a couple of years ago. Nine years ago. I, I made Aliyah. Wow. Yeah, it's so fascinating. The Hashkacha practice, the divine providence, which led me in this direction. It's fascinating. I just want to talk about it for a minute because in light of what I want to speak about today, God really guides us. And if we're open to accepting the mission, there's really no limit to what we can accomplish on this planet. And so when I moved to Spot, right across the street from me was Ascent, which anyone who's been to Spot knows of Ascent. It's like a, a teaching learning center for, it's like a hostel. And the person who ran Ascent, she had been teaching a Torah class there for, I don't know, like 20 years or whatever. And the day I walked in, she said, you know what? I got a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe who said, I need to change what I'm learning, I'm teaching, and I'm going to now teach out of a text. And since I just finished a seum in the Tanya for five years, I learned the Tanya for five years straight. Now I feel like I can learn the Tanya. So let's learn the Tanya. And that was my first exposure to the Tanya. I just walked into the class, just moved to spot. And she had just decided that moment because she got a letter from the Lubavitcher Rebbe that now she had to teach this subject. So that's kind of started off my Tanya love. Your Tanya <laughs> love. Okay. I'm excited because you're going to speak about a really like core concept from Tanya today. Tell us a little bit about the Tanya, what the Tanya is, then introduce the topic you want to talk about from the Tanya. Okay. So the Tanya was written by Shner Zalman of Liadi, who was a student of the Magad of Mezrich who the Magad of Mezrich was a disciple of the Baal Shem Tov. And I just want to say this really briefly, but the reason I, I'm even bringing it up is it, it really underscores the point of the Tanya from my perspective. And that is that the Baal Shem Tov came on the scene, as, everyone, you know, as many of us know, to reinvigorate Judaism and to bring it back from, it's, it's understood that the Jewish people were in a state of, of unconsciousness and slumber because of all the tragedies that had befallen them and false messiahs and pogroms and this and that. So his name, Yisrael, it's like when someone's in a faint, you whisper their name in their ear and it, it awakens them. So the Baal Shem Tov came to reawaken the consciousness of the Jewish people to connect to God. His approach was one of inspiration. His approach was to re-inspire the Jewish people to connect. But in order to enable that inspiration to last all the way through to the end of the time, to Mashiach. And we know from the Rebbeim that the Baal Shem Tov went up into the holy, the heavenly chambers and he asked Mashiach, when my master are you coming? And he said, when your wellsprings go out through the world. So we know, the Baal Shem Tov knew that 
his teachings had to take us all the way to the Mashiach time and they had to spread throughout the world. Now, if you're just inspiring people, inspiration dies. Inspiration is like you light a piece of paper on fire and you get an incredible glow of sparks and like a huge conflagration for a second and then it's, it's just ashes. So that's how I liken the idea of inspiration. You need inspiration. We all need inspiration, but inspiration doesn't last. So what do you need? You need integration. You need to be able to take the inspiration and it needs to be woven into the fabric of your psyche. It's not enough that you learned it. It's not enough that you went to a class. It's not enough that you were inspired by some piece of incredible light, which is what Hasidus is, what the Torah is. It's light. It's just light. But how do we take that light and make it our own personal light? How do we light ourselves up, essentially? And so the Tanya comes to teach us how do we create our own light? How do we take the light and literally like meld it into our being so that it becomes us, that our consciousness changes and morphs so that we become walking lanterns? That's the way that I look at the Tanya. And that's the way that I, I see every word in the Tanya is one of the things that, that the Alter Rebbe says. The Alter Rebbe is the way that Chabadnikim calls Shneir Zaman of Liyadi. He's our first Rebbe, the Alter Rebbe, the old Rebbe. So it's a known fact that every single letter of this book was painstakingly derived. He once told, I think, his brother-in-law that to come up with a single vav, it took him six weeks. And it's also known that every time, every time he wrote something new, he would start from the beginning and read the entire Sefer until he got to the point where he was getting ready to continue on. So and one of the things he says in the, in the introduction is he explains that the Tanya gives the answers to every question. It answers every single person's spiritual quest. It gives insight into every single person's spiritual quest. And, you know, you could say, well, people read the Tanya every single day for their entire lives. So how is it possible that you're getting new, if you have a question yesterday is a different question you have today, how are you finding the answers differently every time you read it? And the way that I understand this is as we change, as we grow, as we mature, as we go through our ups and downs of life, we have different things that we need in our avodah Hashem, in our ability to serve God. Sometimes we're on a high and sometimes we need just like, a little stroke of, oh, if you just dive in a certain way, you'll get to a very high level. But sometimes we really fall and we need someone to help us learn how to pick ourselves up out of the depression or the anger or the disappointment or the self-loathing or the whatever. Like we, we're so complicated, we're so complex as human beings. And the Tanya really enables us to address every different little piece of our journey in life. And so you can see, I guess, if it's so powerful for us on every level, like for him to be able to write this book, it really comes from such a high level. So that's just by way of introduction, just to, just to explain how you can use this book specifically as an integrator. I love that. I love that word that you're using, integration. Like that's such a good description for the Tanya, which is that it's not this type of like, I mean, it's inspiring, but it's more about integration than it is about inspiration. It's not like especially because it talks, as you said, like it'll speak about the fiery love you can have through prayer. And then it'll also speak about depression and self-esteem and really basic human struggles that we have. That was a great description of the Tanya. 
Today, you're going to speak about the first line of the Tanya, the first line of chapter one, which is, which I'm really excited about because it's something that sometimes can just be kind of like taken at face value. So why don't you just explain the concept and explain the translation of it? The Tanya starts, it has been taught. So it says Tanya. That's the first word of the Tanya. <laughs> that an oath is administered to him before birth, warning him, be righteous and be not wicked. And even if the whole world tells you that you're righteous, regard yourself as if you were wicked. Now, this little sentence here, you could talk about it for like four years. There's so much in this one line. Let's just start by saying, if you go, it says it's been taught in Nita at the end of chapter three. So being that I'm a bit of a nerd, I, I was like, I have to know, nerd. What, what does it say there in the Gemara in the tractate in Nida? It's actually on page 30B in case anyone's curious. So what it says there is our birth story. It's the birth story of every single soul, every single human being, all the Jewish people. We all go through this story that it says in the in, in tractate Nida, in tractate Nida, it says that when we're in the womb, we have our head between our knees and a candle is lit above our heads and we are taught the entire Torah by a Malach and we're able to see, it's very interesting language, it says you're able to see from one end of the world to the other. I forget who's, I think it's Rav Simile, but anyway, he says, and if that's hard for you to understand, when you are dreaming, you can dream about Spain. So you can be wherever you are and your mind, your imagination can take you into any realm. And he says, therefore, that's how we can understand that even though we're physically in the womb, our spiritual reality is just is in a different realm. We're completely in a different realm. Okay, so that is the birth story for, of every single one of us. And then what happens? We get tapped on the lip by the Samachmem, by the, the Satan, and we forget every single thing we learn. And then we're made to swear an oath, this oath. Yet we swear to be a tzaddik and not to be a rasha. Every single one of us had this experience in the womb. Okay, so we have this experience. But then we see, it says, we, we see that the fetus sees the light at the end of the tunnel. Like it's about to be born and then this happens. So what? We forget everything and we swear this oath. So I want to talk about the idea of the, of the oath. And the oath is... It's telling us that as a soul, we swore to be righteous and not to be wicked. And what does that mean? What does it mean? If we're going to distill it down to like the absolute essence, it means we swore to put God in the center of our consciousness and not to put self in the center of consciousness. That's what it means. Well, Russia, somebody who's wicked, his whole consciousness is surrounding self, surrounding ego. And at Sadiq, his consciousness is a godly consciousness. So already, when we're born, right before we're born, we already have our mission set out for us. Our mission is we are going to enter into a new reality. And the Friedrich Rebbe says in the Kufi Deborim that the souls, before they enter into the womb, they come from the treasure house, of, the treasure store of souls. They have no idea. Our souls have no idea what they're going to be getting themselves into. They go on this mission. They, have, they don't know what physical reality is. They don't know anything about physical reality. They're literally like taking this leap into the unknown for us, our souls. They come down here and they are on a mission. And their mission is to take this person, the body and the 
human consciousness of the person and try to use the brain. We're going to talk about all this in a minute, but try to use the brain to try to train this human being into a godly entity. The most amazing thing about this is like, so we have these two consciousnesses inside of ourselves. We have one consciousness that comes from this soul, which swore this oath, which is totally like united with God and 100% aligned with that truth. And then we have a whole nother reality within us that is just going along in this world and, and living by our senses and living by what we see and what we hear and the culture and, and we forgot. So we're, we're living in a, a, a total like cosmic amnesia state. Oh, nice. So what's so fascinating, like why I love this so much is because from the beginning, from the time we are born, we already know we have a purpose. We have a built in purpose to our lives. Our life is about shifting consciousness. That's what we're here for. Our life is just about shifting consciousness away from self towards God. And that is what the Tanya comes to teach us. Because you could say, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, shifting consciousness. No big deal. Like, yeah, I'll do this. I'll do that. Ha ha. This is like the biggest struggle of life. It's the hardest thing to do. And even if we think we have it one day, we lost it the next. So what the Tanya does, which, which I just, the more I read it, the more I fall in love with it. It teaches us step by step by step over the course of our lifetime. How do you shift your consciousness in such a way that it's completely integrated into yourself? It's so beautiful how like you kind of pinpointed the whole mission of our entire lives in that first line of Tanya, which sometimes can seem like just an introduction, but is really like a whole mission statement unto itself. You could recognize that this is extremely difficult, okay? Because we know we have an animal soul. We have a whole nother consciousness. We have a self-oriented consciousness. And you could say like, I like to say this analogy. If our, if our day is a string and the string is gold, that would be a perfectly godly conscious day. That would be like if you were exotic, your whole day would be gold, gold consciousness, godly consciousness. But what happens is we wake up, maybe we say Modaani and we have a little bit of gold and then we go eat, we go do whatever we have to do and it turns a different color, it turns green. And then it might be green a really long time and then, okay, so maybe you dive and you're safe in prayers, maybe it turns gold again for a little bit. And then even in your dominating, you're thinking about what am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to make for dinner? What about this kid, this appointment, this, this, whatever. And your life just comes completely consumed with regular day-to-day -day life of a human being. And so, okay, then maybe you give Sadaka, it turns a little bit gold. So I think the Alter Rebbe is trying to get us through our lifetime to make this string as much gold as we can throughout the course of our day. And how do we do that? And how do we remember how to do that? But so before I, I just, I don't want to miss this point because it has to do with your name. <laughs> Tanya. So was, important. <laughs> it's very, very important. The word Tanya that he starts the Tanya with the word Tanya is actually very controversial because it should have said Tana. Like it should be quoting something in the Gemara, like a Mishnah, because it's understood that what this oath is talking about, it's not from a Brisa. It's from the actual Mishnah itself. There's a controversy over whether it would be from the Mishnah or whether it'd be from a Brisa. And I, I guess I could explain that more, but I don't want to get into it right now. I just want to say there's a controversy over that word. So why did he go with a minority opinion that it comes from a Brisa and say Tanya? And the Hasidim of his time asked this question because it's kind of curious. 
And they came to the conclusion that the altar we started the entire book of Tanya, if you rearrange the, the letters, Tanya, it's spelled Eitan, which means strength. So the altar is already telling you before you even go into this mission, you have the strength to be able to accomplish this. So just in case you thought it was impossible to do what the Alter Rebbe is proposing to you, it's not. And not only that, this totally ties into the idea of the oath. What is the oath? The oath says to be righteous and to not be wicked, but what is an oath? It says mashbi'im oto. Mashbi'im means to be made to, to swear. Mashbi'im is understood by the Tzemach Tzedek, and he says mashbi'im means that you're given extra soul powers. So in order to do this oath, we are given extra soul power because of this extremely difficult mission. If we think about it as here you are, this soul, and it came down into the physical world, which was a shock for it. And now it's like going undercover. It's like a deep, deep undercover soul in this world. And guess what? Even the best undercover agents, sometimes they get lost on the mission and they get so invested in the drug lord, whatever, wherever they are under undercover, that they get so like into the whatever's happening that they forget that, that they're on the mission. They get so deep undercover. And that's what happens to us. Our soul gets so deep undercover, sometimes we forget it's even there. And sometimes it gets, it's so enraptured in whatever it's doing. And the soul is so deeply connected to the, to the animal soul and to the body. It needs this extra strength. So that's the importance of this oath. The oath says, you have extra powers to do this. The word Tanya means you can do this. And the idea of an oath, if you think about what, what is an oath, the Rambam says that you can only swear an oath to something that's possible. So therefore, here's another proof that this is something that I like to call mission possible. Our life as According to the Halter Rebbe, that we're going to come down here and we're going to shift our consciousness to a godly consciousness. And we are going to bring that Mashiach consciousness to bear on the world. That is a mission that every single one of us has the capabilities of doing. It is 100% possible. I think this is extremely important today because we all have to know that our strength and our power comes from something much greater than us. If you think I'm not smart enough, I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough, I'm, yeah, you can completely limit yourself in your life. You can completely limit yourself and you can say, I'm only this, I'm in this box and that's who I am. But if we realize that we have this soul that's a piece of God that's inside of us and that swore an oath in order to be successful on the mission of changing our consciousness, you have to believe that that's possible. It's 100% possible. You have the strength to do it. You swore to do. You have all these extra powers to do it. So the only limitation is whether you can align yourself with that belief or not. And I think that in the oath itself, we see why we have the strength. We have the strength because we're aligning ourselves with our deepest self. So we're shifting our external consciousness to be aligned with our internal consciousness. So that is like, it's already inherent within us. So we're not really creating anything new. We're just kind of like training the second consciousness to be aligned with what's really going on inside. So I see how like how the inherent in the promise itself, you can see why you have the strength is because you have it, you have it already. It's just like about bringing it to the fore. It's really beautiful. And you explained it very beautifully. I would love to hear. So you, you first started learning Tanya when you went to Ascent generally, but when did you have this like 
or did you have a specific moment or was it kind of like a, a process where you were like, I can shift my consciousness. Like this is something I can do and that I want to do. And I'm going to start integrating this into my life. So my mother is a school teacher. Well, she was a school teacher and she, when I was growing up, she was very on the forefront of what's called experiential learning where you, whatever you learn, you have to live. You have, you know, she would take, she would teach her kids about a certain neighborhood and they went out there and they videoed all the people and they asked them questions and they were living in that space. That's how I embody the Hasidus that I learn. You have to experience it. You have to practice. If you don't practice what you learn, you're not integrating. Okay, fine. You might be smart and might be interesting and you might be good at cocktail conversations and telling people, but there's genius people who know Hasidus from front and back, but it's all about changing your habits, changing your mindset, integrating these concepts into your everyday experiences. So, I mean, not to sound like a nerd, but in things that I do in my life, I have a godly consciousness. When I eat, I mean, not always, obviously I'm not Sudeikis, but, you know, like I make certain, it's like with anything, you know, James Clear, you know, his book, Atomic Habits. Changing a habit just means you have to make a commitment to have small Kabbalahs. It's a haklata. You have to make a haklata yourself. Every time I drink a glass of coffee in the morning, I'm going to recognize that I am revealing godly light and energy into this space. It's just practice. When you do it every day for a certain period of time, now you don't drink coffee the same way you did. It could have been that your coffee was like this incredible taiva and you're like had to have this certain milk and you had to have this certain grind and you had to have this. It had to be this temperature with them, these beans. And okay, so even if you do still have all of that, now you're saying, but it's for God. This coffee is for God. That's what it's for. That's what, and God has this coffee here in front of me because every moment is an opportunity for me to change the color of the string from green to gold. And if I can drink this cup of coffee with that consciousness, then I just put a little gold paint on that string. And that's how we have to do everything. I mean, literally everything in life is an opportunity for that. Everything. It's just a function of what's foreground and what's background. And that's why I think the whole idea of really getting very clear on the idea that this is our personal birth story. This is my life. My life is I have a soul inside my body. That is my life. I have a soul inside my body. Everything else is just how am I going to manifest it? What is primary and what is secondary? And I, the altar talks about this all throughout the Tanya when he's talking about Amit Israel also, who says, how can you really love another person? Well, if your body's primary, then you can't love another person because you're focused on the physical. But if you're really focused on your soul and you know your birth story is the same birth story that everybody else had, then you can focus on what's primary, which is that truth that, that underlies everything. I love that you mentioned habits because as you said in the beginning, sometimes we view Hasidic teachings as inspiring, but in order to really integrate it, it requires discipline and like habit forming it's not the type of thing that that shifts without that conscious effort and discipline. And that's something that we often don't think about when we think about being inspired is habit forming and discipline because consciousness doesn't shift just from study. It shifts from like that deep avoda, you know, the deep service. Right. And I think that's really hard today because everything's so instantaneous and nobody is really like clued into avoda. It's funny. It's like, 
one of the things that I struggle with a lot and I've, I've worked on a lot is prayer. I also find myself, you know, you want to kind of rush through the prayers. You have a lot of stuff going on. You have to get through your day and well, your mind is just already like spinning. Like I need to do this. I need to do that. Blah, blah, blah. But if you really take those moments, anyway, you're standing there. If you really take those moments and you think, okay, this is my opportunity to make my soul in the forefront. And the Tanya gives us so many places in the prayer to be able to hone in on that truth. So I personally now take the prayer service and I'm like, and it's a voda. That the thing about a voda, you know, ibud, <laughs> it's like it, it's hard work. It's hard work, right? You know. But the thing is, look, I used to be a run. I used to be a big exerciser. I used to be a runner, and I would wake up every single morning at six o'clock in the morning and run three or four miles every day, every day. But it, was it fun? No. It wasn't fun. It was never really fun. But I did it anyway because it was important to me for whatever reasons that I had. It's the same thing with this. If it's important to really be in a state where your consciousness is aligned with truth, where you're able to, we're in pay aleph, we're able to see the aleph, the Rebbe talks about all the time, that Mashiach consciousness is seeing the aleph in the world, going from gola to geula. The only difference between exile and redemption is our perception of reality, literally. So how are we going to change our perception of reality? We actually have to do work on ourselves to change our perception of reality. That's called avoda. We want Mashiach now, but if you don't do, how are you going to get to Mashiach now? You, you have to change yourself. And you could say that's such a drag, but you could also say like, oh my gosh, look what I'm able to accomplish because I'm tapping into my soul. So that's why I think prayer is just such an incredible opportunity if you really... If you take it seriously, even look, I'm, I mean, I'm a mother, busy person, whatever. It's not like I get deep kavan in my entire prayer, but there's certain things that when you stand up there and you realize this is a moment that my soul wants to connect to God. Even if you just say those words to yourself, my soul wants to connect to God in these moments. Like that's a great big step forward. <laughs> and like you said, with the string, it can even just be like two minutes of prayer. It could even just be 30 seconds of divine consciousness in the morning to kind of like align yourself in that way. I'd love if you can give some examples of how this alignment or the shifting of consciousness from self to God would look in a non-conventionally spiritual example. So it's easy to see it in prayer or doing any of this mitzvah specifically or studying, but how would this show up in day-to-day -day interactions? If you could give some examples from your life, that would be amazing. Like any really, as you said, like you're engaged most of the day with really mundane day-to-day -day acts as most of us are. So I'd love to hear practical examples of how the divine consciousness could show up there in regular life after you pray and after you align yourself in the morning. What would that look like? So the first step is really awareness. You have to be able to catch yourself in your moments in your day to be able to shift your consciousness away from self to other or from self to God. That's the very first step, because if you're so consumed with your own self all day long and you're like in your human consciousness, you don't make space to stop and pull open the moment, so to speak, and say, OK, how do I make room for other in this moment? So th that could be something as simple as your kid is having a temper tantrum. And instead of getting personally offended by how it's affecting you, you're embarrassing me in the store. Or I had to get to an appointment 
or, you know, whatever it is, like, I'm going to have to wash your clothes that you just spilled your juice box all over or whatever it is. It's all, that's all about me. So when you're, when you're in that moment, if you could just be aware of yourself for a minute, like fly up over your, your, your experience, look down, be an observer and say like, okay, what consciousness am I in right now? You know, just to ask yourself the question, what consciousness am I in right now? That makes the space for you to choose. Am I going to make a godly choice here? Am I going to recognize the, be compassionate and have, you know, see the child's perspective? Am I going to see that God gave me this test right here in this moment for me to choose to be engaging in my godly soul? That's an extremely important thing to learn how to do is to stop yourself in your moments, pull back and make a choice. That's where habit becomes so important. I was listening to Label Wolf. By Hashkacha, I just happened upon one of his a video, and he said something that I just loved. And he said in his practice, I think he's a psychologist, but he said, "How do you change people's thought patterns? Because you know we all know we have to change our habits." He said, "30 minutes every day." Don't quote me on this because I, I it was only something that I heard. But he said, like 30 minutes every day, you have to focus on that awareness. You have to focus on being out of your self-consciousness and just be an, an observer of what's happening in your life. And then after a week, you don't need 30 minutes a day to be in that observer conscious because you're training yourself. You're training yourself. Maybe the next week, he said it only has to be five minutes a day. But that's what we need to do. We need to watch ourselves live. And if we can get out of that animal soul ego consciousness and recognize it that, it, that when it's happening and stop yourself, you'll be able to stop yourself sooner and sooner and sooner. So that to the point where, okay, maybe now you could stop yourself when you're in the middle of, you know, grabbing the juice box out of your kid's hand and you're like, oh my gosh, this is not going well. Maybe the next week before you start screaming in the middle of the story, you'll just be like, oh, okay, I'm not going to say anything. A week later, maybe in your thoughts, you'll be like, I need to make space for this child. Obviously, something's going on here. You're not even going to get to action. You know, you'll still be back in thought. And then maybe before that, you'll just be like this very calm, hashkaha practice, like living in a moon of person. And you'll just be like, thank you, Hashem, for this test. I <laughs> really, I'm davening that you give me the strength to have composure, to have compassion on my child and it sounds whatever. like a very special moment that happens to people like a couple times in a lifetime <laughs> but that's the point you can train yourself you can train yourself to get to that point point. and going back to what we said before it's possible it's possible and not only that you have the strength to do it Eitan, you have the strength. It's interesting because you usually have the perspective after the fact. So I know for myself, whenever I mess up, I, I have a very clear perspective after the fact, whether or not I was aligned with my self-consciousness or my godly consciousness. But shifting it to be in the moment is really key because, I mean, I guess any awareness is good. And then as you said, you kind of shift the awareness earlier and earlier and earlier so that it can actually stop you in the moment before you act. So a lot of us feel it after the fact, but feeling it in the moment, what would be your tips for feeling it in the moment, for having that awareness when you're hot-headed, when you're getting upset, when things aren't going your way, to actually shift your awareness in the moment, when yourself is loud and clear, like is speaking loud and clear? So uh, that's a great question. And that's where the body becomes so helpful. Because when we feel emotion in the body, that is a clear sign 
that we need to stop and assess what is happening. The body's response to emotion is coming from an animal soul place. So the minute you like heat rises in your face, your heart starts beating, you get tensed up in your shoulders, you know, you, so it's like a certain body consciousness to be like, okay, here it goes. Like, I got to catch this now, you know, take a deep breath and get back to where I want to be in my consciousness. I, I mean, I say, get back to my godly consciousness, get back to putting the olive in this moment. You know, the Rebbe was, I love that. I use that all the time, putting the olive in this moment. Olive represents the oneness of God, that God is everything, that God is everywhere at every moment. And that's like a quick tool that I use to get myself back to center. If I'm going to eat a piece of cake, you know, I'm like, put the olive. Just, just, it's like something that I've trained myself to say to just put the olive in this experience. It's in every aspect of our life, every realm with our husbands, with our children, with ourselves. It's just a really quick and easy tool. Just saying, put the olive in, it, it like says everything in, in one word, in one letter. That is such a practical, good example of using your body as a map that when you feel your, like when you literally feel physical sensations in your body, that's your key that you, yourself, yourself is, I mean, that sounds like yourself, but that the self is kind of taking center stage there and you have to realign to that like calmer, more centered place inside of you that isn't like just trying to get your attention by like getting the blood to rush to your head or to all your limbs and making you upset. That's a really good example. I love that. Another way to use the body, because that is where we're heading as a, as a nation, is becoming more and more physically a vessel for the Ein Sof to shine through. That's Mashiach. And that is also using the body. You know how we were talking about before about integrating these concepts. So we can't just integrate the concepts into our mind and into our emotions. I feel that we more and more have to integrate these concepts into our body. And that's why I think so many people today are so interested in body work. How do I feel this in my body? How, you know, yoga and, and meditation and all these and breathing and all these things, because it's taking these very, it's taking the godly consciousness and it's literally integrating it all and weaving it into our physical self. So it's not just stay as a, as a concept, but it literally becomes like a, a vessel for it. I definitely feel that with like yoga and meditation, how it does like, it brings the, it brings the God. I mean, if you're focusing on the godly awareness, it, it literally brings it into your body, which is this like incredible fusion. I think like prayer, or if it is like a form of prayer, not obviously like traditionally, but I'm saying if you can, aside from prayer, but if you can use that as a way to like align yourself with your divine consciousness, it's a moment that you can tap into throughout the day to tap into that divine alignment that you felt in a moment when yourself is taking center stage. It's a very powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah, it's extremely powerful. But I think the more your mind is in tune with the truth behind what you're doing, the deeper it goes. You know, it could be like, that's the, also the idea of like, you could go to a yoga session and like align your body with the spheros and like have a really deep session. But then when you walk out, like it, it could be gone in a second. So, so it's like, but this go, takes us back to how do we integrate it so that it becomes habituated into our behavior. It's great that you had a, a great yoga session, but then you get out and you, you know, you, you yell at your husband because you're whatever. So it's like, that's where, I mean, I hate to sound like such a traditionalist 
<laughs> that's what Chabad is. Chabad is saying it all starts with the mind. The Chachmabina and Das, that's the, that's the point, that's the first point of integration. That, that is, Chachma takes from above and drops down below into our mind. So like, if we have to be so like using our Chachma and often, <laughs> using the, these tools often because that's the pathway through which this whole process takes place. I once heard that the Hafez Chaim said that the last, the Gog Umigog, like the Third World War, would be called Milhamas Gigim, which is a, a war of our thoughts. And we can see today that's exactly what's happening. We are literally in the midst of a war of thoughts, a war for who gets to say what's true. And so what I find is the more that I close myself off to all that negativity and mind manipulation that's going on on all around us and all the time, you know, on the, on the news and the internet and all that, whatever. And I shift that time that I would have been spending on that to learning Hasidus, it changes my life. It just changes my life. Because instead of now, because how does Chabad work? You know, whatever we're thinking about is going to affect our emotions. Like we already know that. That's just standard Hasidus. So if I'm spending my day, even if it's like a slip here and a blip there, and a, you know, it creates anxiety, it creates fear, it creates uncertainty, it creates, it's the opposite of where we want to go. So I do feel like it's, it's a war for our mind. If this is not too personal, would you be able to give a specific area in your life where you struggle to integrate the divine consciousness into like the daily life and how you deal with it? Because I'm sure you obviously sometimes succeed in that area, but like a specific thing, a specific scenario or situation. Um, this is... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have a place where we all have it. It's just, I feel it's like it'll whole, make it's for, a holy, alone, right? for a holy purpose. No, like you're so angelic. You really are. And I remember like, I, I feel so struck by like how refined your face is literally. It's extra special to hear from you because as someone who really lives by these concepts, but you're still human as we all are. As much as you live with these concepts, you still have that self side, that human side and seeing I think seeing how you wrestle with a specific scenario is a very teachable thing. That's, that's my pep talk. <laughs> I'm going to talk about this just because I, I think it's really, um, it's really necessary in today's day and age to talk about this concept of intimacy in the bedroom. I think that we've been exposed to so much impurity in the world and depending on where your background is and whatever, like it's not always coming from like an absolute place of purity. Intimacy is really the core of every marriage, 100%. And I would just say like, if you want to have a good marriage and you want to have Sean Bias, you have to work this situation out in the bedroom. Like it has to be coming from a place of godliness. It has to be coming from a place of purity. It has to be, it's the holy of holies. And I would say that Today, it's not such an easy topic. It's not such an, and, and people have a lot of issues and nobody talks about it because it's kind of like, who do you even talk to about it? You know, who do you trust? Who do you, who do you look up to even enough to talk about it sometimes? You know, what does it say in the Torah? It says, um, an Adam yada et Hava. That's how sexual relations, you know, marital relations are discussed. And he knew Hava. He knew her. What is DOS? You know, this is like, that's what we're talking about, integration. That, that's what DOS is. DOS is integration. It's like 
leaving your psyche with godly consciousness. That's what DOS is. It's taking two things, the multiplicity of the world, the separation of the world, and it's making it into a unity. It's making it into one godly entity. That is what our job on earth is. Okay, that's what we're doing here. That's why our soul came down here. It's to see the unity in the multiplicity. Well, that's what marriage is. You have two people with two completely different mindsets, viewpoints, whatever. And if you want to make a unity in your marriage, then you have to use that place of DOS. That's where it's a coming together of two separate things into a unity. And that is making a cleave for your, your Shalom bias. It's making a cleave for the Shrina to dwell in your home. And so that requires practice. It requires practice, not only in the physical aspect of it, but in the mental aspect of it. Where is your mind during that experience? Are you focusing on using the physicality to be a reflection of godly unity? It is the ultimate place to go with that. I mean, it's like that's why marriage and, and relations between a, a man and a wife, that's how all of Kabbalah uses that imagery. Because that is a absolute reflection of our relationship with God is in that moment. That's as close as we can be. And if we use that moment for that purpose for which God intended it, which is to make a unity amongst two different people to the, the separation consciousness, that to me is an incredible place to practice this, these teachings. And also, I just want to say, like, what you're thinking about at that moment, I think people need to pay attention. What am I actually thinking about? Because are you really in it or are you not in it? Are you, is your mind over here? Is your mind here? Like, where is your mind? You know, again, it's, it's all about catching your awareness. So you have to catch your awareness in all aspects of your, of your day, in all aspects of your experience. This idea of catching your awareness and really using your mind as the birthing point for your behavior, like in a really disciplined way, affects every single area of your life. Also, the most emotional areas of your life and the most human areas of your life. It's not designated only for prayer and it's not designated only for when you're going to yell at your kids. It's also designated for intimacy and it's also for when you're eating a piece of cake and it's also when you're struggling with feelings of self-doubt. It really, it spills into every single area. It's almost like you have to ask yourself a question, where in my life am I the least godly? Where in my life is God in the closet, so to speak? And that's where I'd say you have such a beautiful opportunity to be like, okay, let me open this up and see in an ideal world, if I had absolute mindfulness, and presence, how would I do this differently? And then go for it. Say, okay, how would I insert, you know, the other thing that I always like to, this is like my mantra to myself, is like, you know that uh, copyright little insert, the carrot? There's like a little carrot. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's like a little, it's like a copyright language. It's like a little carrot that goes up and it's, and it's like means insert. So like the title of my book, <laughs> when I write it someday, is going to say insert Insert God. That's the title of my book. That is what our life is all about. We, at every moment, we have this opportunity. Okay, if I can be aware right now and be mindful, how am I going to insert God into this moment? It doesn't even make any difference what it is. That's the whole point. It doesn't matter. Everything is an opportunity to insert God. I'm going for a run. 
okay, insert God. This is for, you know, I need this in order to have a healthy body to serve God with, period. That's it. All you have to do is every moment that you remember to insert God is a moment where your godly soul is flexing its muscles. Even if you're going to watch a, a Netflix movie, okay, and you know that's not really what you should be doing with your moment, but you're doing it anyway. So, okay, say, okay, I'm going to insert God for one minute before I watch this movie, and I'm not going to watch it for one minute, and I'm going to give that minute to God. It doesn't make a difference. Every Our whole lives are an opportunity to insert God. And just to be honest with yourself, that's the whole point of the Tanya also. You know, when the, the Russian uh, censor read it, he said, this book takes the boy, out of the, the, the boy out of the man. You have to be very honest when you're reading this book. This book is telling you, like, you know what? Yeah, you're totally not there. But guess what? Tanya, you have the strength to get there. You can get there. You have the strength. At any time, just choose. Just choose to go there and you can do it. Okay? So that's, that's what this is about. It's about choosing to go there. You know, sometimes I just get, like, so kind of beclamped. Because I'm like, the sages tell us this in every... What do you think a husband and nephesh is? A husband and nephesh is not to sit there and tell you where you messed up all day and, and you're a bad person. It's like, oh, tomorrow I have an opportunity in this area to insert God. That's so exciting. Like, wow. That's beautiful. And basically what you're choosing to do is choosing to live in the oath that your soul made before coming down into this body was that no matter what reality it faced and no matter how strong the reality of self was, we would choose to align ourselves with a divine consciousness, even when it wasn't obvious and it was hidden beneath the layers of our reality. So I would love for you to tell us a little bit before you go, just tell us about your Tanya classes, what they look like, and then I'll put the details of the class in the notes. So since um, we're getting ready to enter into Yudtes Kislev, so if anyone's interested in joining the WhatsApp group, I do the daily Tanya, at least for the first uh, 52 chapters of Tanya every day. And I try to make it very practical. So as um, Tanya said, true to the text, but also trying to make it a coachable moment. So every day is an opportunity to really integrate the Tanya into your day today. I mean, there's a reason why every day, just like the altar we said, we have to live with the times, we have to live with the times when it's What's the Parsha say today? What's the Tanya say today? So try to make it something that's very relatable. And it's a good reminder to uh, be aware of how we can integrate godly consciousness into our day. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful. I can't believe I had the honor of speaking to you. Thank you so much oh, for being please. here. Literally. <laughs> Kama, have an amazing day. Thanks for being here. Elokai zakinina betoratra urimitotecha Mechambered nishmati tamidilecha Mechambered nishmati Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please take a second to leave us a rating or a review. It means a lot to us and it helps other people find the podcast. And you know, we're all about getting Hasidus into every corner of the world. Human and Holy is currently on a season break. What you just listened to was a re-airing of one of our most popular episodes from the first season of the podcast. Season four launches on Sunday, November 26th, 
just in time for us to celebrate Yuta's Kiss Life together. Make sure you are following Human and Holy so you don't miss out on the launch of our new season. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>